About a month ago, I was reading, I was watching the evening news, and I learned about a couple, Charlotte and Eric Kaufman. They were in their early 30s. They had two daughters, one and three, and they had a dream of sailing around the world in a 36-foot sailboat. They had set sail down the west coast. They came to Mexico. They put into port there to experience the Mexican culture and to see some things. They reprovisioned the boat, and then they headed out across the Pacific Ocean. It's a big ocean. They'd been sailing for two weeks. They were about 900 to 1,000 miles offshore when they lost part of their rudder. The steering quit working for them. Their one-year-old daughter became sick. She started running a high fever with a rash all over her body. They became frightened for her, for the family. And so they used their satellite phone to make a distressed call to the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard came out immediately to rescue them. They stayed with them until a Coast Guard ship came out. And then all the family was transferred from their sailboat over to the Coast Guard ship. With the proper doctor and medicine and drugs, the baby did just fine and everybody was safe. And they began coming back to San Diego. But as they did, boy, did the criticism start to pour in. I mean, there were so many people saying, leave your children out of this if you want to be so reckless and foolhardy. Leave them with someone trustworthy and go do your thing. Another person said, it is obvious that Eric and Charlotte will not win Parents of the Year Award. No, they are irresponsible and they need to grow up. They need to learn that the first responsibility of a parent is to protect their child from harm. Now I'm sitting there listening to all this. And I'm thinking, well, not everybody thinks that way. No, no, I know of lots of people who have taken their young children and sailed around the world. Had an incredible experience as a family. And when they came back home and their children began to mainstream back into school or college or whatever, they did incredibly well. No, I know that the Kaufmans were doing this because they wanted to be close to their children. They set sail like this so they could be close to their children and not be distracted by 50 and 60 hour work weeks and all the activities of kids outside the home. They intended to homeschool. So they could teach them math and say, see how that affects when you're doing navigation? Let's learn about science. See the weather and the forces that fucks the boat. Social studies, we're going to meet new people. We're going to discover new cultures together. They wanted to teach them so that they could learn these things and they could do it together. And it is true, they did want to protect them. They wanted to protect them from gangs and drugs and from violence and school shootings and, and television with all of its violence and sex. There was a lot of things they wanted to protect them from. But if you're not comfortable with sailboats or being out on the open ocean, well, then it can seem incredibly irresponsible what they did. But they actually did it because they did love their family and they wanted to be so close. But boy, were they ever criticized. I was watching that and thinking about all this as the news was playing. And then towards the end of the story, end of the newscast, there was another story that day. Very tragic story. Came from Orlando, Florida, Orange County. It turned out a man had been driving down the road and he 
turned right, was preparing to turn right, when a car came from behind at a high rate of speed and hit him from behind, throwing his car forward, it jumped an embankment, a hedge, and crashed into a preschool. The car literally went through the wall. Now, they would later find that the man who was driving at a high rate of speed out of control was selling cocaine and heroin. It was in the car. And that's why he fled the accident. And the man's car who went through the preschool wall, it tragically hit a little girl, Lily, who was four years old and killed her. And a dozen more children were seriously injured as well. And I was listening to this and I thought, if the first most important responsibility of a parent is to protect their child from harm, were the parents who put their children in a daycare irresponsible? I don't think so. No, the truth of the matter is, you can't live protected from all the hurtful things there are out in the world. Whether it's physical harm, mental harm, psychological harm, you can't stop all the pain and the problems that happen out in the world. But we seem to live in a culture right now that thinks we ought to try. We are working harder and harder. It seems like our main goal is be safe. I look at all the things that get legislated now. Be safe. All the things you can't do in PE at school because it's not safe. And we can't let you have a tire swing. It wouldn't be safe. And kids go out and they got their helmets and the things on their elbows and their knees. and all, They look bubble wrapped when they go out to play. And I, I think, how do you play anymore? Our first concern became, how do we stay safe? But personally, I think that the most important role of a parent is not to protect their children from harm. It's to make sure they live life in a meaningful and productive way. And that means that sometimes we risk. And life can be hurtful, psychological, mental, physical, emotional. But you live. In our scripture lesson this morning, I thought it was fascinating. Jesus sends the disciples into a boat and then sends them out onto the Sea of Galilee. And it was night. You don't get in a boat and go out onto the Sea of Galilee at night if you're trying to play it safe. Because out on the Sea of Galilee is where the storms are going to blow. No, it's also where miracles happen. And it's also where life is found. Jesus did not say, come, follow me, and I will protect you from all harm. No, Jesus said, come, follow me, and I'm going to send you out into deep water. I love our scripture this morning. It's a great scripture, and I want us to take a moment to kind of go through it and see what it has to say to us and all graduates today. You can find this, actually, it's in three different places. You find it, first of all, in the book of Mark. We think Mark was the first gospel written. And you can read it there. Then you can turn over to the book of Matthew. And Matthew then tells the story and he adds a little bit to the story. And then you can come to the book of John, which we believe is the last gospel to be written. And there John actually tells it the most succinct of any of the other gospel writers. But when John tells us this story of the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus walking on water, I believe he tells it not just to tell us what happened, but there are some theological points he wants to make to the early church. Because that's when the gospel's being written. He's trying to say something to the early Christians. And I think he's trying to say something to you and to me. 
we look at the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, about, 18, about 8 miles wide. It's a fascinating body of water. The truth of the matter is the Sea of Galilee is fresh water. But we call it the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about 140 feet deep at its center and the deepest place. On the far side of the rock face is a rock-faced wall, and there's a V in it. And so when the winds begin to blow at just the right angle, it starts to come through there, come down the V. It acts like a Venturi effect, comes rushing out across the Sea of Galilee. And you may have started in a very calm day, and it can change into a storm like that because of this rock formation and the way the wind is going to blow. Now, when John tells us they got into the boat and they went out and they rowed for about three to four miles. What does that tell you, first of all? We're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, the deepest part, where the wind can blow suddenly and there can be a terrible storm. That's what John's trying to set the story up for us to know. Second part, you look at the boat. It's kind of fascinating if you stop and think about the boat in the Scripture here. It was in 1986, 1986, that there was a drought going on in Israel. And the amount of water in the Sea of Galilee had begun to recede. And as it began to recede, there were some fishermen on the northwest shore who were out fishing and wading through the mud in what was now shallow, very shallow. And they came across something and they thought this might be interesting. And they began to do some digging and decided this was important. They called the authorities. The archaeologists were brought in. And as they began to excavate it, they found a fishing boat that has been dated for 2,000 years ago. From the pottery found on board to the carbon dating, they said, without a doubt, this boat would have been in Jesus' time. And the boat has now been called the Jesus Boat. You can go look it up and learn about it. Fascinating how they retrieved it, what they had to do to, to preserve it, and how it now is on display in a museum. We learn a whole lot about the boat that the disciples probably were in. The boat was 27 feet long, 7.5 feet wide. That's not big. 27 feet long, 7.5 feet wide. The sides were about 4 foot above the water. It had to be open so you could throw out the nets and be able to fish. What they found was it could probably seat 15 people max. And there was a place for four people to be able to row. You see, if you're going west to east, you might have a favorable wind and you're able to be sailing across the, lake, the Sea of Galilee. If you're going west, chances are you're going to be rowing and maybe into the wind. So that's what was happening. Twelve men now in this boat. Can you imagine how close it was to the water? And the winds are beginning to pick up. And Mark tells us it's in the fourth watch of the night that Jesus comes. That means 3 to 6 a.m. The middle of the Sea of Galilee, where it's the deepest. And in the time, it's the darkest. In a small boat, 27 feet long. And the waves, it says, are torturing the boat. And the wind is blowing. What a tough moment. And what's really fascinating is... All three gospel writers tell this story right after the feeding of the 5,000. So you're going to have the feeding of the 5,000, and the people are so thrilled they want to take Jesus and make him king. And that's why Jesus said, you disciples go get in the boat and go to the other side. 
They didn't want them getting caught up in this king fever. You go to the other side. Wait for me there. How often in life you're on a high? Feeding of the 5,000. And the next thing you know, you're on a terrible low. That's what happened with the disciples. Feeding the 5,000, it's great. And now we find ourselves in a storm in the dark of night. And they are afraid. And Jesus comes walking on the water. And as he draws near, it says they think he is a ghost. And so they begin to cry out. And Jesus says, it is I. Have no fear. And they take him into the boat. And John says, and immediately they were at shore and safe. I think there's some important things John's trying to say there. And we're going to come back and look at those things. But what he's basically saying is, if you follow Christ, you're not going to be playing it safe. You're going out in the deep where the storms can blow. But you don't have to be afraid, for it is Christ who comes. This morning, with all of our disciples, with all of our graduates, what I want to say to you is, congratulations, we are so proud of you. But this is not an ending. It's a beginning. It's the beginning of an opportunity to keep on learning and doing new things. For all of us are called to keep on learning all the days of our life, to be willing to follow out into exciting ways. Jesus does not say to any of us, Come, follow me, and I will keep you safe from harm. Jesus says, Come, follow me, and I'm going to lead you out into deep water. I want to continue on this morning with the sermon series, The Voyage, Trusting God on the Open Seas. And there's really just two things that I want us to look at this morning. First of all, if you're going to follow Christ, then be assured you're going to have to be willing to try new things. You have to be open to new experiences. For Christ is going to call you out of your comfort zone where you feel safe psychologically, emotionally, physically. God is going to call you into life. You're not just called to be safe from all harm. He's going to call you to stretch into new life. Think about the disciples. Twelve men get sent into the boat. Four of them we know were fishermen. Peter, James, Andrew, John. Those four were fishermen. But what about the other eight? Well, one of them we know is a tax collector. We think another one might have been a carpenter. We know that the other eight had jobs on land. Maybe it's because they hated the water. Maybe it's because they didn't like boats. Maybe it's because they get seasick. They, had, they were on the land. And Jesus says, get in the boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee at night. I have a feeling at least eight of them were in that boat going, I didn't sign up for this. Talk about having to do something new. I think it was symbolic of what was going to happen for the rest of their lives. That Jesus was always going to be asking them, are you willing to learn and experience and do new things? They would soon be asked to teach, to preach, to work with the poor, to heal, to start churches. Do you think any of them three years before had thought they'd be doing any of those things? They were all going to be asked to do something new, out of the comfort zone. You know, one of my favorite sayings, if you've been around here long, you know I'm always asking, when was the last time you did something for the first time? I'm always asking myself that on a regular basis because I, I find, you know, I start doing things and I get comfortable. I know where I'm safe. 
psychologically, emotionally, physically. I get safe. And so I ask myself, when was the last time you did something for the first time? Are you still letting God stretch you and grow? This last Friday night, I was down here at the church for our El Sistema concert. I know some of you were here as well. What a fun night. You know, it was El Sistema that we started nine months ago. It's our after-school ministry where we bring in kids who are second, third, fourth, fifth graders, elementary school, and teach them how to play classical music. These kids have not had any background in music, and yet we gave them uh, trumpets and flutes and violins and basses and timpani, and, and they all got together and started to learn how to play. And they are amazing. This was the concert at the end of the school year, and to hear how they are able to play and know they've had nine months to learn to play these instruments, it was amazing. And I think all these kids had to decide, I'm going to learn something new. I'm going to put myself out there. I've never picked up a trumpet or a French horn before. I'm going to risk and try this. But what really was great that night was there was a little third grade girl. Her name was Daisy Teets. Daisy stands about this high and she plays the bass. But she's fallen in love with music. And what she discovered was, maybe God's given her a real gift of music. Third grader. She came to those who were teaching her and said, uh, I'm working on a composition for the orchestra. And so she composed a piece of music. And on Friday night, we had the world premiere of the Pioneer Song. It was a song, that, or a piece of music she wanted to write that would capture the the struggles of pioneers as they went out to settle our land. It was an amazing piece of music. And when she got through, we all stood to give her a standing ovation. And we're all clapping, and now you can't see this little kid. And so the conductor took her and held her up in the air and spin her around, you know. And, and she's just giggling and wiggling, and we're all clapping. And, and I thought, wow, what if she hadn't taken a chance? To try something. And then to try something even more. You have no idea the things that you might love to do unless you step out. I know some of you have heard me tell the story before about how I learned country western dancing. It was years ago. Marsh and I were living in Houston. And there in Houston we uh, were part of Mission Men Church. It's the church we started from scratch. And it was a young, bunch of young people, and we had such a good time together. And, and all the wives got together, and they said, why don't we get a hus our husbands to take uh, a country western dance lessons? And so they figured out an instructor that they could hire, and what would we all have to pay to chip in enough to pay them? And so they decided to book it at the church there in the fellowship hall, and they made all the arrangements, and Marcia came home and announced, I have signed us up for dancing lessons, Bob. I said, no, no. No, no, no. I, I'm not interested. Oh, Bob, everybody is doing it. I mean, all of our friends are going to do it. It's going to be so much fun. I really want to take country western dance lessons. And I said, no. I mean, you're forgetting two things. One, I don't like to dance. Two, I hate country music. Why would I want to take country western dance music? No, I'm not doing this. Marsha got quiet for a moment. And then she said, you know... When you got your pilot's license and you asked me to go fly with you, I did. When you asked me to learn how to ski, 
We took lessons and you took me to the top of the mountain and we skied down. When you got your captain's license and you asked me to go with you so you could rent a boat and we could go sail in the Caribbean, I did. Everything you ask out of me, I risk my life. I'm asking you to learn how to dance. Now, i got to tell you, one of the things I appreciate about Marcia is she knows how to explain things. She helps you understand what the real issue here is. And so I thought about it for a moment, and I said, so when are the lessons, dear? And so we went, and we began to dance, and the strangest thing happened. I had a ball. I loved dancing. And I got to where I love country music. I got those on my station, my radio buttons as well now. We enjoyed it so much when it came to our anniversary, we gave ourselves additional private lessons to go take together. And we would go out with our friends and go dancing. And I think, how close I came to missing something I enjoy so much because it was going to be uncomfortable. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, I wasn't interested. If you decide to listen to Christ, I wonder what Christ might call you to do. If you might feel a call to go on a foreign mission trip to Honduras or to Russia. If you might be called to be a mentor for a child at Rancho Village Elementary School or at El Sistema. If you might feel called to help drive for mobile meals. If you might feel called to teach children or to sing in a choir, or to become a part of an ensemble, to play in an orchestra, to lead a Bible study. All those things that take you out of that place where you're safe and make you feel where you risk. I can assure you Jesus did not say, Come, follow me, and I will protect you from all harm. No, Jesus said, You come follow me, and I'm going to lead you out into deep water. Secondly, you can be sure that if you follow Christ and you decide to risk, you're going to be in the storms. There's no question things are going to happen. Whether you even decide to follow right, you're going to be in storms. Life gets hard. You're going to find yourself rowing against the wind, making no progress. In the middle of the night, in the deepest part of the sea, you're going to feel like you're out there and you're afraid. That's when you get unexpected answers at an unexpected time. The disciples had gotten out there rowing. Jesus had wanted to get them away from all this king fever, sending them to the other side. They had left him on the land to dismiss the crowds. And then Jesus came walking to them on the water. That's one thing they never expected. For Jesus to be out there with them in the storm, they didn't expect that. They'd left him on the land. And when Jesus gets there, he says, it is I, have no fear. If you look at the words, it is I, in Greek, you could translate them, I am. Now to say, you show up, I am, that's that's not good grammar, it is I. But, I think John was trying to use those words intentionally. Jesus shows up and it says, 
I am. It ought to make you think of the book of Exodus. Moses, the burning bush, talking to God. Who am I say is sending me? I am is sending you. For Jesus to be there walking on the water and to say I am is to say God is here. It is God who walks on water. It is God who comes in the midst of the storms. I am. Do not be afraid. All three gospel writers have that statement. I am. Do not be afraid. For you see, if you know the presence of God in the midst of the storm, you don't have to be afraid. And if you're not afraid, then you have a sense of hope. You have hope. We say here at St. Luke's, our mission is to share God's love and bring hope to the world. How do we bring hope to the world? It's when you share God's love, people come to experience, I am. And if you know I am, then you aren't afraid. Even though life is difficult, you have hope. You do not quit. One of the great temptations in life is to quit on life. To decide, I'm going to live where I'm comfortable, safe. I'm never going to do anything different. Life didn't work out the way I planned. This is where I am. It's to quit on life. Jesus didn't call you to quit on life. He called you to live all the days of your life. Follow me out into deep water. You don't have to be afraid. I am. You don't quit. You know, there's no better example of how important it is not to quit than last Tuesday night. Yeah, had to let you think about that one for a moment. Absolutely. Last Tuesday night, I was there for the Thunder basketball game. I had a friend who invited me to go, and we went to the Thunder basketball game. You know, I, I was so excited to see them play, because i got to tell you, I, I was a little upset with them on Mother's Day. We had had such a great worship service. Marsh and I went out to lunch. We were all feeling so good. We came home, and we watched the thunder lose, and they ruined Mother's Day. <laughs> I mean, just killed my spirit. You know, after we'd had such a good morning and day, you know, to lose in the last moments, and now the series was tied 2-2, so we went to the game. And I was really hoping this is the night we got to win. And you could tell they played like they had a hangover from the loss on Sunday night. They just weren't running down the court. There were no points on a fast break or transition. No jumping up and slamming it down. No, we fell behind and we'd get close. We'd fall behind more. We'd get close. You could just tell it was not a good night. The refs, they were making all kinds of calls I did not understand. I kept trying to help them and explain what they were doing. I'd gotten hoarse trying to encourage out there now. You know, we were trying to cheer him on, and then it got all the way down to the end. When it got all the way down to the end, down to about a minute, and Chris Paul sank a bucket, and suddenly now they were up eight points with about a minute to go. I looked at my friend and said, boy, I'm afraid it's over. I mean, it's just, I'm afraid it's over. It looked impossible. And so people started streaming out of the arena. They were walking out of the arena before the game was over. There are some of you here today <laughs> who left before it was over. You know who you are. I know who you are. I was taking names. Who's leaving? As people were streaming out, I'm thinking to myself, you people should have taken philosophy. My undergraduate in college was philosophy. 
And if you go back and you study philosophy, you have to learn about Socrates and Aristotle and Yogi Berra and... And if you study the great philosophers down through the centuries, like Yogi Berra, you will know that Yogi told us, it ain't over till it's over. Very simple, but very true. And so we stayed to watch. And suddenly Kevin Durant hits a three, and then there's another basket, and then there's a foul, and three free shots for um, Westbrook, and he sinks all three, and it's 105, 104, six seconds left. They inbound the ball. They don't get off a shot. You don't know how high a preacher can jump. (laughs) We were jumping up. We were cheering. We were screaming. We didn't want to go home. Five minutes, ten minutes, the game is over. We're still standing there cheering and screaming. Fifteen minutes after the game is over, we finally decide to leave. And you go down and you get into the lobby. And suddenly somebody starts cheering and we all start cheering again. It was just so contagious and so exciting. And yet, we had just been at a point where we knew it was over. It was impossible. But what we as people of faith have learned, it's never over. With God, all things are possible. What we know is we are offered life now and life eternal. And God doesn't tell us to play it safe. He calls us to live and to grow and to weather the storms. We weather the storms because I am is there. You don't have to be afraid. You have hope. Do not quit on life. Graduates, I assure you, Jesus does not say to you, come. Follow me, and I will keep you safe from harm. He says, come, follow me, and I'm going to take you out into deep water. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.